teaching series this morning, and I asked the Lord what he would have me bring to us as we get ready to, to move into full-on Christmas mode, and, and he spoke very clearly to me in this season when we're all so busy. Let me ask you, have you ever been guilty of trying too hard at something? I mean, raise your hand if you fall into that. I do. Sometimes I think I'm the worst at it. I tend to, to assume that trying harder is the answer to everything. I remember years ago standing at a, an inspection when I was in the military, and it was a big deal inspection, and I happened to be in the front row of this formation, and the generals were coming through, and I was so determined to try as hard as I could at this inspection that they, they had us assume this position with a thousand-yard stare, and I'm just it's so intense, and what happened was I was trying so hard that I ended up leaning way forward and sideways and it had to look ridiculous, you know, and I remember the general coming by and he stopped in front of me and he got a funny look on his face and he reached out and straightened my shoulders and pushed me back and I kind of wanted to die in that moment, you know, trying too hard. We all are sometimes guilty of it and sometimes the greatest damage from trying too hard can come in our walk with the Lord. We're going to explore that this morning. But first, about six or eight years ago, uh, I shared with us a video that I just think captures trying too hard so perfectly. It's about four minutes long. Give your attention to the screen for a moment, would you? Yeah. <laughs> I think we can all relate to trying too hard, and sometimes... We assume that trying too hard is the way we can overcome not knowing what we're doing. And nothing uh, could be further from the truth. Trying hard is, is no substitute for knowing the truth, for knowing what you're doing. I made up a word years ago. It's been about 20 years ago, but you may have heard me use it from time to time. And that word is God's sick. What does it mean to be... God sick. Well, the reason I made up the word is because we see in Scripture this tendency of those of us who are most passionate about our faith to think that we can substitute trying hard for knowing what we're doing. Jesus said that the, the greatest commandment is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your mind, all your soul. And he said, the second commandment is like it, to love your neighbor as yourself. And then he said, all the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. In other words, these are the most important things for a follower of Jesus to aspire to. Above and before everything else. Not in spite of or excluding everything else. But this is the priority. This is what comes first. This is at the top in the heart of a father God. God's sickness is when we think otherwise. When we come to the conclusion that our beliefs about who God is, about what's right, about what's wrong, lead us to deprioritize loving God with all our heart, mind, soul, and strength, and loving one another as we love ourselves. It is easy to come to that place where the collection of truths that we've accumulated about God because we're not paying attention, lead us to think that other things are more important than these two things. One of the great shocks in Scripture 
is to discover that the most intensely religious people of Jesus' day, the Pharisees, were in fact his arch enemies. And that the nation that God had chosen through whom to bring his son into the world became those responsible for his murder, his execution. How is it that sometimes the people of God become the enemies of God? That those who are trying the hardest end up on the wrong side of the story. And, and the truth, the answer to that question is that sometimes we believe more in trying hard than we believe in the gospel. Let me say that again. We believe more in trying hard than we believe the gospel. When it comes to your relationship to God, which do you believe in more? Who he is or how hard you're trying? Before you answer that question, consider this. Your ability to evaluate yourself is, is pretty limited. You and me have what we call blind spots. We tend to rationalize our own behavior. We tend to shade things to make ourselves look or feel better. Psychologists call it self-delusion. We do it both consciously and unconsciously. God knows this about us, and so his word reminds us of it. Jeremiah says in chapter 17, verse 9, The heart is deceitful above all things and beyond cure. Who can understand it? Jeremiah is describing his own experience of his own heart in that moment, but he's doing it under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. God is revealing to us that uh, we stand in the same place. The Apostle Paul puts it this way in Romans chapter 7, verse 15. He says, I don't understand what I do. For what I want to do, I don't do. And what I hate, I sometimes do. I wonder if you can relate. I won't ask for a show of hands on that one. But there is perhaps no passage in all of Scripture more easy for us to identify with than that one. There are dozens of advanced studies that confirm this bias towards self-delusion. One caught my eye recently. Dr. David Dunning of Cornell University in a 2005 study discovered this, that self-confidence is inversely proportionate to technical competence. Or to put it another way, the more confident somebody comes off, the less competent they actually probably really are. That those who present themselves are most as most confident do so because they know so little about what they're talking about. How real that is, and it explains an awful lot about what we see in the world around us. I, I remember one time many years ago when I, I was getting together with my guys' small group on a Sunday night, and this was in another city, Lacey, Washington, uh, back in the day. And um, the, the wives uh, of the guys who were in this small group, as they were all kind of dropping us off, they, they decided that they wanted to go shopping together. They just came up with this plan. Hey, why don't we have a ladies' uh, time together? There was about six or seven of them. And, and uh, the problem was one of the ladies had their toddler a uh, little boy with them, and she said, oh, I've got, you know, I can't remember his name now, but this little guy here. And so all the guys, we said, oh, we'll watch him. No problem. We'll take care of him, right? Just leave him with us. He's one of the guys anyway. And you could just see the looks on the faces of all the ladies. Uh, 
Can we leave him with you? Are you going to watch him? Are you going to pay? Oh, sure. He's one of us. We know how to take care of a guy. It'll be great. And so we convinced them to leave. And, and they drove off, you know, excited about having an unanticipated little bit of time together. And us guys, as soon as they walked out the door, we're being guys. And not five minutes after they left, this little boy tripped on the patio, went face first into the porch and got a giant bloody lip and a black eye. Five minutes after they left. And to just sort of put the icing on the cake, one of the ladies had forgot her purse. They turned around and came back five minutes after they left. And we're all gathered around this bleeding, bruised little boy in back that they left us. It wasn't serious, but, you know, it was overconfidence despite a lack of competence. Do you know what you don't know about yourself? You know, in that moment, all of us guys were saying, we know how to do this, but I'll never forget that night because five minutes later, maybe we didn't know as much as we thought we did. Church, if we're going to understand ourselves at all, if we're going to answer the question of whether we're just trying hard at religion or truly growing up in God, we're going to need help because we don't understand what we do. We can't discern the depths of our own hearts, as Jeremiah and Paul have made clear to us. Fortunately, God offers his help. Jeremiah tells us in chapter 17, verse 10, I, the Lord, search the heart and examine the mind. If you want to know what's going on in you, listen to me. And the Bible tells us in Hebrews chapter 4 that the word of God, the scriptures, the Bible, the, the word of God that comes by the Holy Spirit in times of prayer and worship, the word of God is living and active and sharper than any double-edged sword. It penetrates even to dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It judges the thoughts and attitudes of the heart. In other words, God says, I can help you discern what you can't about yourself, about the inside of you, if you'll listen to me. If you will listen to me and let me make those discernments, those diagnoses, God can help you see yourself clearly. And we need to. We need to, especially when it comes to this subject. Again, I remember back in the 80s, I'm ashamed to say I was one of those guys going around proudly with a gigantic mullet, you know, the spiked part in front, the curls going down the back. And, and one time, you know, I was going to an event and I didn't have time to get a haircut, but I needed one. And so I tried to cut my mullet myself. Not a good idea. Can I just tell you that? Because I can't see myself from the back. I ended up cutting one side shorter than the other. My wife was mortified. You see, we need help to see ourselves clearly from all the right angles. God says, I'll give that to you, Greg, if you listen to my word. Okay, that being the case, what does God's word say is the thing that gets in the way of loving God and loving other people, of keeping that the priority, as Jesus says it must be? What is it that gets in the way? Well, Scripture tells us very plainly. And what it is might surprise you. Some would guess that what gets in the way is sin, but it isn't. Sin comes a close second, but it doesn't come first. Some might guess it's the devil that gets in the way, but they would be wrong about that. He comes in third. Some might think it's laziness, but in fact, it's the opposite of laziness. It's busyness, spiritual busyness. In fact, Scripture makes it unequivocally clear that it is sometimes the pursuit of God that gets in the way of finding God. Let me say that again. 
It is the pursuit of God which often gets in the way of our finding him. Uh, Turn to Romans chapter 9. We're going to spend most of our time this morning in verses 30 through chapter 10, verse 6, a little short passage in which the apostle points out clearly to us that chasing God is the reason some people don't find him. Romans chapter 9, beginning with verse 30, here's what God's word says to us. Paul is writing to the church at Rome, and he says, What then shall we say? That the Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have obtained it, a righteousness that is by faith. But Israel, who pursued a law of righteousness, has not attained it. One pursued, one didn't. The one that didn't encountered God, the one that did didn't encounter God. Why not? Because they pursued it not by faith, but as if it were by works. They stumbled over the stumbling stone. As it is written, see, I lay in Zion a stone that makes men stumble and a rock that makes them fall, but the one who trusts in him will never be put to shame. Jesus is that stumbling stone. How? In what way is he? You know, in our performance-oriented world, we would assume that those that try the hardest are those that succeed, and that's true in many things. But it is not true when it comes to righteousness with God. When it comes to righteousness with God, as the Apostle Paul is making clear here, there's a different dynamic at work. Israel chased God, so to speak, that's what Paul is saying, but didn't encounter him. The Gentiles did not chase God, and he came to them. Take that in for a moment, and then ask yourself, which are you doing? Pursuing him or letting him come to you? This is Christmas season. It is the story of God coming after us. It is the story of God giving himself to us. It is the story of God giving himself to unworthy people because that's who he is. It's not the story of worthy people finding him at the top of a mountain. It's the story of him entering our world in the most unlikely of circumstances, born to a teenage mother out of wedlock, born among the poor, born in a manger, born as a baby with all the helplessness that that entails. That's the Christmas story. That's the beginning of the gospel story. Have you ever stopped to really think how absurd it is to pursue God, righteousness with God, as if it were some kind of a merit badge? And yet it's very common for people to do just that. Jesus told a story in Luke chapter 18 about a Pharisee and a tax collector who both went to church. The tax collector didn't go often. Matter of fact, this was a rare occasion in which he did. The Pharisee was there all the time. And in the story, Jesus says the Pharisee stood up and he said, God, I thank you that I'm not like other men. I'm a winner. I fast twice a week. I give a tenth of all I possess in the offering. God, I'm pursuing you and it's awesome and I'm glad for it. The tax collector stood at a distance, Jesus said. He beat his breast and said, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. And then Jesus said, the tax collector went home justified. The Pharisee did not. 
And in that moment, Jesus is addressing the very sentiment the Apostle Paul is writing about in this moment. You see, the Pharisee believed more in what he did than in who God is. And that's the difference. Someone may say, wait a minute, Pastor Greg, doesn't the Bible say, for example, in Jeremiah chapter 29, you will seek me and find me when you seek me with your whole heart? Yes, it does. And doesn't Jesus say in Luke chapter 11, seek and you will find? Yes, he does. And doesn't the Apostle Paul exhort us to approach discipleship like an athlete in training in 1 Corinthians 9? Yes, he does. Run in such a way as to get the prize. Everyone who competes in the games goes into strict training. They do it to get a crown that won't last. We do it to get a crown that will last forever. Yes, yes, yes. But listen to the very next two verses the Apostle Paul appends to that description of discipleship. Verses 26 and 27 of 1 Corinthians chapter 9. The same thought where Paul draws a distinction between seeking God through effort alone and seeking him wisely. He says, therefore, I don't run like a man running aimlessly. I don't substitute effort for truth. I don't fight like a man beating the air. In other words, it's not just effort. No, I beat my body and make it my slave so that after I've preached to others, I myself will not be disqualified for the prize. In other words, he says, I don't go about this aimlessly. I don't go about it through effort alone. Paul says, I pursue God in his way, not my way. That's the difference. That's what Israel was missing, and that's what the Scripture is calling our attention to. Church, please understand, this is a big deal. When we seek God our way, we find a God made in our own image, and the Bible calls that a false idol. When we seek God in our own way, we find a God made in our own image, what the scripture calls a false idol. But when we seek him in his way, we find him for who he is. Now, I remember when I, I first started dating Rhonda, and I don't know if you've ever noticed, but young men, when it comes to romance, aren't very smart. At least this one wasn't, all right? And so I would, growing up in the household that I did, I would invite Rhonda to go to the races, because all women want to sit outside in the cold and inhale gasoline fumes and have engines so loud that you can't talk to each other because that's what they look forward to, right? Well, some do, actually, but my wife didn't. And, you know, she went a time or two, but it wasn't helping the relationship. And very slowly it began to dawn on me that I needed to invite her out to things that that she was about. And once I started doing that, well, then things started to take off. In the same way, God invites us to understand that he doesn't reward us for our achievement before he seeks us because of his love for us. That's a big deal. To put this another way, Paul is explaining that the problem with the Jewish people of his day is that their thinking about how to pursue God didn't jive with Jesus's. They thought of it as mountain climbing when it was really rolling downhill. Look at verse 32 of chapter 9 again. They pursued it not by faith, but as if it were by works. As a result, verse 33, they stumbled over the stumbling stone. Paul says they did this because they had zeal but no knowledge. Look at chapter 10, verses 2 to 3. The apostle puts it this way. He says, I can testify about them that they are zealous for God. They try hard. But their zeal is not based on knowledge. They don't know what they're doing. Since they did not know the righteousness that comes from God, 
the one that he gives, and sought to establish their own by their effort, like the Pharisee in that parable in Luke 18. They did not submit to God's righteousness. Zeal without righteousness where every follower of Jesus starts, but very quickly God teaches us that that's not how we finish. I remember when I first started to really begin to learn soccer seriously. And one of the things that I had to get rid of that, that uninformed people think is that, you know, getting to the ball is not about chasing the ball. When you begin to play soccer seriously, you discover that won't work, especially not against a good team. Most of the time in soccer, you are actually not running towards the ball, you're running away from it into open spaces where then the ball can be passed to you and you can pass it on to somebody else in open spaces. The ball comes to you because you're open, not because you're trying hard, not because you're running towards it. In other words, as you learn soccer, you discover there's a knowledge that guides and directs your zeal. In the same way, we don't grow close to God, church, by climbing up to him. The gospel is more like rolling downhill. Paul says that the Gentiles had learned how to roll downhill, verse 30. But the Israelites were still climbing, verse 31. Why? Because they thought that climbing was the key. They believed that it was all about effort. So let me ask you simply again this morning, are you climbing or falling as we turn the corner into Christmas? Are you attempting to achieve intimacy with God? Or are you receiving it? Because he comes to give it to you as a free gift. This metaphor of climbing and falling isn't something I made up or came up with on my own. If you look at verses 6 and following of chapter 10, Paul is the one who introduces us to it. He says, the righteousness that is by faith says, don't say in your heart who will ascend, climb into heaven or descend. Same idea, vice versa. But what does it say, this righteousness that comes from God? The word is near you. It's in your mouth. It's in your heart. If you confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord. Believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead. You'll be saved. In other words, intimacy with God, relationship with God is something you receive, not something that you achieve. The Christian gospel, the Christmas gospel, is the story of God climbing down to us, not us climbing up to him. And this makes all the difference because we seek him by receiving him, not by achieving him. Again, if I can illustrate, my, my, my wife makes this awesome, amazing fish soup. She just puts all kinds of ingredients in it. And, and I know sometimes those ingredients will be in the freezer. And I'll think to myself, I'm going to make fish soup tonight. And it never works. Right? I make it. It doesn't taste the same. It isn't the same. And at the end of it, I'm always like, we should throw this out and order out because this just isn't happening. But when she makes it, it's totally different. So I've come to realize that I can't achieve fish soup. But I can receive fish soup, right? <laughs> I can text her and say, what about fish soup tonight? You know, and she say, yeah. It's the same way with the gospel. Church, think about this. We're almost done this morning. The greatest delusion in the world is that you and me are good people and we go to heaven because we do good things. Once you let go of that, both that you're a good person and that you're doing good things, sends you to heaven. Once you let go of that, that's when you discover, that's when you find out that God is a savior. And nothing else will cause you to fall in love with him. If you think it's about what you do, guess who you'll fall in love with? You. If you think it's about who he is and what he does, then who do you fall in love with? Him. 
Nothing else will call, cause you to fall in love with him like receiving him as your Savior. Nothing else will ever have the power to cause you to fall in love with your fellow human being, your fellow Christ follower, except receiving Jesus as Savior. Your achievement won't do it. It can't. It doesn't have power. But the gospel does. We, we are the people who love the old hymn, Amazing Grace. But listen to the words. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. Are you a wretch? The correct answer is yes. <laughs> and it is in owning that that we discover who he is. If you don't know there's a you're a wretch, there's no joy in that song. We fall downhill when we let God tell us the truth about ourselves and then discover who he is. Now, some people are climbers instead of followers, and it's very easy in these last few minutes we have together to identify a climber if it's somebody else or if it's you. First of all, climbers are always judging other people instead of loving them. Always judging other people instead of loving them. Jesus said, Matthew chapter 7, verse 3, why do you look at the speck of sawdust in your brother's eye, pay no attention to the plank in your own? Well, because they're climbers. That's what climbers do. They're ignorant of the fact that God is present in the needs of others. Jesus said, whatever you do for the least of these, you've done for me, which teaches me that my fellow human being's need is God's presence. Climbers don't think so. Climbers are not only judging other people, they're constantly judging themselves. And they're constantly angry with themselves. Why? Because you can't climb high enough to even reach your own standards. You can fool other people sometimes into thinking so, but you can't fool yourself. And so you live with a smoldering anger and resentment that manifests as a critical and judging spirit, not only of other people, but of yourself. Climbers live with a secret anger and a despair over themselves. I wonder if that's you this morning. Christmas is about setting you free from that. Christmas is about God giving himself to you. Climbers are often also angry with God, although they'll never admit it. It's all happening on the inside. Why are they angry with him? Because he doesn't meet their expectations. Their expectations that come from climbing and achieving and rewarding those who do. Climbers are often angry with God secretly because he doesn't smite the people they think should be smited. And he doesn't exalt the people they think should be exalted. And because he chooses losers like Matthew and Mary and even Judas to be his disciples. And because he tells winners like Nicodemus and the, Nicodemus and the rich young ruler that they actually need to, a whole new start. And because he tells older brothers to rejoice when young prodigals stagger home broken hungover. And because he pays people who work little as much as those who work a lot, like in that great parable of the worker in the vineyard. I could go on and on. Climbers, God's sick people, live with a secret anger and resentment of God. They would never admit it, but it's there because he doesn't do what they want. Finally, worst of all, if you're a climber, you're becoming more and more proud of yourself the higher you climb. And in fact, all that's really happening is you're getting more and more high and I don't mean that in the good sense of the word. You're becoming too oxygen-starved to think straight. The Bible says, For it is by grace you have been saved through faith, this not from yourselves. It is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. Dr. Archibald Hart, one of my favorite uh, 
people to quote, writes this. He says, a constant state of adrenaline arousal is often experienced as pleasant, but it is, in fact, physically damaging. For Christians, this happens when we associate good feelings with spirituality. Very quickly, when we do, we find out that we don't, quote-unquote, feel spiritual unless we're excited or happy. And then... We stop seeking to love God and love people and start trying to stay excited and happy instead. The truth is, he writes, there are far more Jesus junkies than real disciples. But it's easy to tell the difference. Disciples love God and love other people faithfully. Jesus junkies just chase thrills. That is an incredibly convicting and accurate thing that the doctor is saying. It's what Paul's talking about. It's what Jesus was talking about. A man was asked, what have you gained by all your praying and seeking God? The man said, nothing in the way that you're thinking. But let me tell you what I lost. I lost my anger, my ego, my greed, my lust, my insecurity, my hatred, my depression, and my fear of death. That's what I lost. Sometimes the gospel does its greatest work by what it takes away from us rather than what it gives us. Church, this is what Christmas is all about. God came near. God comes to us. We receive him. We receive his grace. We don't achieve it. And it is in the receiving that we experience who he is. One more passage of scripture before we close tonight or this morning. In John chapter 1, verse 51, there's a beautiful picture of what we're talking about this morning. Jesus says, I tell you the truth, you shall see heaven open and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. Now, I confess to you that when I read that the first time as a new believer, I had no idea what he was talking about. And in fact, for years, I didn't know what Jesus was talking about in this moment. It's just one of those crazy things Jesus says and who, you know, whatever, whatever he's talking about there. But then eventually I learned what he was talking about, became one of the most precious passages in all of God's word. You see, Jesus is referring to a moment in the Old Testament, Genesis chapter 28, a moment when a guy named Jacob, who all of his Jewish audience would have immediately recognized, a guy named Jacob was sleeping in the wilderness, and he has stone for a pillow, and in that unlikely place, he experienced God. Now, the way he experienced him was he saw angels ascending and descending on a ladder. And so we talk sometimes about Jacob's ladder. And uh, what God was revealing to Jacob was that he is in that place even though it was no place. And so it became a precious story to the Jews. God is everywhere in all places. Jesus takes that story and he says, remember what Jacob experienced where he saw God, God's angels coming up and down on a ladder? He said, that's actually happening right now in me. I am God come down to you. In those days, pagans believed that if they climbed to the top of a ziggurat, a temple, if you climbed to the top, you could be close to God. Some people still think that we're closest to God on the mountaintop. But Jesus said, no, you're closest when God climbs down to you. And that's what he does in Christ. Church, this morning the Holy Spirit says very simply that your efforts are not what God is seeking in this season. 
as much as he's seeking your willingness to receive him. You know, if the efforts rise out of that, great. But if the efforts rise in order to achieve that, that's where the greatest mistake of all is made. The mistake of Israel, the mistake of the Pharisees, the the chosen people of God who became the executioners of the Son of God. Why? Because they believed more in their trying than in who he is. And so this morning, God invites us to remember as we turn the corner into Christmas that our gospel is about who he is, not who we fail to be. About him coming down to us. I like to ask people the question sometimes, how much gasoline does it take to get from Snoqualmie Pass to North Bend? People say, well, what car am I driving and how fast am I going? All this kind of stuff. And I laugh because do you know how much gas it takes to get from Snoqualmie Pass to North Bend? None. You turn left and put it in neutral. (laughs) Okay, you go all the way down the hill. You don't even have to have any in the car. That's how the gospel works. You turn left and gravity takes over. Would you bow your head and close your eyes with me this morning? If you're here and you've never turned left to Jesus Christ as your Savior, you can right now. The gospel of Christmas is that God is seeking you. That God wants to save you and make you his son, his daughter. And that happens in the moment that you turn to Jesus, take your hand off the wheel, And let his Holy Spirit take over in your life. You can do that right now. Right here if you choose. God is here seeking you. Maybe you've done that, but somewhere along the line, you grabbed the wheel again. And now you think it's all about how fast you can go and how much gas you have in your tank. And God says, no, Greg. Remember that righteousness comes from me, not from you. I give it to you if you're willing to humbly receive it. Maybe you're someone who's forgotten that. This morning, as we turn the corner into Christmas, a good father wants to remind us that that's who he is. Lord, we thank you for your word this morning. We pray that as we go from here, it would be with the joy that comes from believing more in who you are who we have failed to be. We pray for that this morning. Let that lift us up and change us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Would you stand with me, church?